We're back to the Neil Haley Show here on the Caregiver Dave Celebrity Segment. I'm excited to welcome to the program Caregiver Dave Nassani. Dave, what's going on? How are you? Hey, how you doing? Just enjoying life, moving forward. Hey, it is. You said book release. Getting ready to release my new book. Yeah. When, when is the book release? Uh, Cinco de Mayo, May 5th. May 5th. Available, available for pre-sale right now. Secrets from the Hammock. So you're, you're continuing to go. And our guest today... It has an entrepreneur mindset as well. And I'm excited to talk about his cool. acting, modeling, and entrepreneur's mindset. Adam De- Dennis Geiger. Adam, thanks for stopping by. How are you, man? Thanks so much, Neil. Yeah, I'm doing good. How are you? Good, good. So where do you think you get this? You, you're, you're a jack of all trades in different ways. Where do you think you get this when you started out in your life saying, you know what, I want to be an entertainer, but you're doing so many different things in so many facets. Is that the way uh, someone in entertainment needs to to really be able to be successful is have multiple facets of skills? Yeah, you know, I would say like, um, you know, all the art that I'm doing, everything that I'm doing is just like a flow of how you feel, what you're trying to put out there with yourself, you know? So even today I came here, I'm like, got the messy hair. I got, you know, many different kind of like looks, many different sort of approaches to how I do things. And, you know, it's like, um, I think it's part of my soul. So I always had this sort of like, inclination to say you know like whatever form of expression whatever way i can get myself out there just kind of like be genuine and you know um these are the things that i'm like yeah i think it's pretty helpful if like you have the different traits these different things you should utilize what you're good at so i can't tell how old you are how old are you and how old are you trying to look (laughs) it's a secret it's a secret um yeah you know okay no, I'm still I'm still a, a young guy, you know, out here trying to make it in New York City. But um, yeah, I mean, so I guess your probably, age range, you know. Oh, I'm I'm the um, I'm the archetype of the the young male, you know. I'm like, I guess I would say, if my age range or something, whatever you want it to be, maybe like in your twenties, like you know, something like that. All right. Could you be right, a teenager? So, sure, sure. Yeah. Why not? Sure, you can not? play whatever the, the, the opportunities come. So what came first, modeling or acting? Um, you know, acting came first. So I was in, uh, yeah, I was in North Carolina. We didn't have much acting or anything, but I came out to New York City and I had this intention of like, I saw these things on TV. You know, I would watch old movies. I saw things like movies like Goodwill Hunting, and it's sort of like related to these main characters and thought, you know, this is something that really affects me. And I can see like myself in this character and sort of came out here with this pursuit and this sort of archetype in my mind. And then I started reading all of these different plays and really diving into the real acting work of it. And I saw, you know, a lot of what the writers were writing were, um, you know, similar to experiences and ideas and things that I thought of myself and so I felt like it was really relatable and I sort of discovered myself doing that. And then, um, you know, modeling came with, I had some, uh, I had a friend sleeping on my couch. It was from, um, he was from Moscow. He was a, a great photographer and he was trying to make it out here in New York. And he started doing some stuff, um, Vanity Fair and things. And he just took some photos and he was like, dude, you know, the, these are excellent. So every time I took photos, I would do them inspired by a lot of the actor studio, kind of like, James Dean, these promos that they would do for these movies. And um, my, my modeling stuff really took off because the photographers I kept working with were just like really impressed with the shots we would take. So we pushed them into, you know, getting different um, connections and, and magazines and stuff and sort of like building that, you wow. know, as it goes. That yeah. is amazing. So, so much. 
so you were um how supportive are your family are, are they an acting family as well i mean were they kind of shocked at the direction you're going did they try to support you dissuade you great question um yeah you know my family so my parents had me when they were 19 so it was my mom and my dad and they kind of like um uh, I think I was born in a, in a small town in Salisbury, North Carolina. And as far as like doing acting and doing those things, I mean, I think that people saw the potential of the way that I spoke. And I, I was always sort of this way, just kind of breaking the mold and just trying to discover life and seeing this way. So I felt like they saw, oh, yeah, you know, you have like this potential, but it's hard when a lot of people maybe don't sort of they, they think, oh, like, uh, it's, in a, it's a, an enigma. How do you even, how do you even do that? And I think that a lot of people, you know, it's like you open your mind to being, having a more open mind and pursuing those things. You sort of um, gravitate into situations that, like, that you're sort of, I would say it's like you're attracting or manifesting. So I don't think that they could really see a bigger picture for just in general, like um, what, what I was saying, but I had always had this drive to move, to leave North Carolina to move out. Um, I was on my own since I was like 16 years old. So yeah. I don't, you know, I think that they support like as far as even as my parents sometimes have been become, uh, you know, friend, friend like, and, and, and sometimes, you know, parental in ways, but sort of like, I feel myself leading myself into this thing and i and i really appreciate you know the the like evolving of my relationship with my parents through kind of putting myself out there and starting my company and doing the acting and all that stuff sounds you know, like you really raised yourself uh have, have they reached the point where they've acknowledged and says you know uh uh adam we're so proud of you we, we had no idea uh, anything like that well <laughs> you're still of, waiting for I, that <laughs> i mean you know like um yeah, my, you know, my, my dad, like we wow. used to, we used to have problems, you know, but like, we're, we're very much similar, like philosophically in our, in our tastes and things. And I think when he sees me putting myself out here, I got into this, um, this magazine, it was Rebel Magazine. And uh, he's just like, you know, I think that that's very on brand. And so when I do things like that, my dad says, he's like, you know, I put, I, I, I go by my three names, Adam, Dennis, Geiger, and his name is Dennis. So he's kind of like, you know, I'm out there too. Like, you know, I'm out there with you doing it too. So I, you know, I like that and I'm going to continue to keep doing amazing things. And I hope that I can, you know, continue to impress my friends and my family and see where all of it goes. Cool. So, what, so you took the, the modeling into art and explain how you are, you know, involved in this business and how you've been doing this. So you have the acting, you have the directing, producing, and you have the modeling, but then it led to Creode, right? Is that correct? How you pronounce it? Yeah, Creode. Uh -huh. So tell about how that started. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So, you know, I came out in New York and I, and I had like, like I said, I saw some of these archetypes and I, and I wanted to kind of discover what was like, um, what, what acting I wanted to portray. So when I started seeing myself in, in these different roles and, and performing in front of people, then I, I started discovering those, those sort of archetypes for myself. And so whenever I wanted to make, you know, art, I was sort of looking to embody something that I could communicate with other people. And when I, when I was looking at different plays, I felt like I have to tell this story. I have to tell in this way. 
I want to make something that comes from the heart. I don't want to, you know, I want to make something that's really unbiased, but something that I can maybe show in a sense of realism. I studied some method acting and things and got some technique. And I saw what was good and how I wanted to present the things that I like said that I've seen before in these styles. So I started my theater company while I was studying at Lee Strasberg Institute. And I was going like every day, what I would do is I just love reading. You know, I, I read all these different types of books and, and I would read plays and, and I would love to perform them. So I would read with my friends after classes or in between different things and try to organize different groups. And then I was reading um, some certain plays where I was just like, you know, I read them for a very long time. I was like, you know, we, we got to put this on. And I found the groups of people that I was like, okay, I'm going to start this theater company. Um, we're going to really put on this, these full shows and we're going to do this in a sense of, um, of realism and a sense of just this raw, authentic acting that people can look in on the, on the stage and sort of relate to the situations that are happening. And I felt like this was what the actor studio had kind of wanted to do themselves. So when I was at Strasbourg, I started to make my company. I started doing branding. I started working with this um, advertising agency, well, a branding agency, AKA. And um, they do a lot of the shows around New York for Manhattan Theater Club and a great organization. So I was telling them my ideas and the philosophy of like how I wanted to present theater, how I wanted to make um, affordable theater for you know, audiences that are similar in like, um, you know, maybe give access to people that maybe normally wouldn't see these things in this way, but, but, but could benefit from seeing something that was similar to their life. That was sort of like unintentional to sell them anything, but just to show them something that was like an experience that I had that I know that we all live through the similar uh, problems and these are representing these plays. So when I started doing that um, at least Strasbourg, you know, I got some even like feedback and friction from the institutes and things thinking like, you know, okay, well, how is uh, breaking out on your own to making your own message and doing it out here in New York City, I, I mean, I just reached out to these different theaters and I reached out to these different uh, playwrights and they were inspired by the passion. You know, I don't know. I just was, I was like, I'm going to do this. We're going to do this in this way. And um, yeah, it took on a life of its own because there was a lot of people that were really talented that I got to, you know, get into their ear. And it taught me a lot about producing. It taught me a lot about acting and what I wanted to do in my message. And that sort of helped me realize my path. Wow. Who are you? <laughs> Uh, I don't know too many people from North Carolina who are as talented as you. And I'm, I'm wondering, how did this happen and how did you transform? And I mean, when you came to New York for the first time, I mean, it's like, oh, my God, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. I mean, how did you how did you get used to the uh, different lifestyle and the different world? Wow. Yeah, I, I got used to, I think I was always a little bit different, maybe from, um, I, I lived in a small town. I mean, you could say it was in the middle of Salisbury, in the middle of nowhere, kind of like a Piedmont, flatlands. And I always liked to have a lot of fun. You know, I always had a really like large expression for energy. Maybe this was because uh, my parents were so young. I was always, um, you know, like, even when I, I see myself as a kid, I went through a lot of stuff, you know, when I had these things that I wanted to express in these beautiful ways and like this way of like 
seeing like, okay, I feel just so blessed to be able to, you know, have all of these like um, interesting situations and all of this like inner turmoil, but then also like euphoria and like simplistic joy. And so I, I, when I came out to New York, I felt that I had some qualities and things that I wanted to share with people. And so when I started doing acting in New York, yeah, I mean, it was kind of like maybe this is a, a big city, but I appreciated that there were so many different people. So I would enjoy all of these different experiences, just talking to different people and putting myself out there. So when I got on stage and I was doing acting, I think a lot of um, the instructors or whatever you want to call them, actors themselves and directors, they saw me and they said, wow, this guy's got a lot of drive, a lot of passion. Yeah. And I felt like that is something that sort of carries me is like, I'm so, you know, active in that sense of wanting to express this. And, and I found acting to be something that could like really allow me to tap into that and share that with people. Yeah, You're like this old soul, you know, it's like, where did all this stuff come from? Were you ever nervous or were you ever anxious or were you ever insecure or you just skipped all that? <laughs> Mm, yeah. Um, I mean, I think we all, yeah, I think we all have those thoughts, but you know, the, one of the best things that I sort of, uh, I don't know where I picked this up, but it was the idea and what I really like felt like, cause I was wondering like, yeah, sometimes you get your, your blood flowing and like, yeah, you can relax. And, but you know, when you, when you go out, you want to be present, you want to be in the moment and how can you lose yourself while you have all of this energy while you're in it? Well, it's like, it's it's not really nervousness. It's like um, it's excitement, you know. So I turn it into adrenaline. like kind of this. Yeah, it's like the adrenaline comes, and then once you start getting used to that, you're like, oh, okay, I did that well. Okay, <laughs> you know, now I can channel that in these different ways. Maybe I can be relaxed with it. Maybe I can let it sit in myself. And then, yeah. I mean, that's like an interesting spiritual kind of practice. Yeah, you are an old soul. So not, not what with the uh, so starting your company and stuff like that where where has it gone since you know people were looking like you shouldn't do this this is not you're not ready to do this and how have you developed it and where is it going right now wow thanks yeah um yeah i mean that was that was a, the challenges but i was sort of so um visioned and what i wanted to do i mean that's what the idea of my company created was like you have a vision you want to do this realism you want to do art that's authentic and raw and so I put that ahead of everything. And even like, as I think that that was good that I had gone through so many challenges being in like North Carolina, you know, seeing myself like uh, putting, putting myself, I mean, I was on my own since I was like 16 years old. So I was like, uh, nothing's going to stop me from doing this. And like there, what it was hard, you know, putting on things on my own, but I did get some help from some beautiful people that like saw my energy and saw what I was trying to do and, and gave me some silent guidance, didn't really tell me all of the things that you could do, but were just kind of there for me to bounce my ideas and help me execute things. So I had a couple of people that were like really my rocks that sort of were maybe more involved or, or had like had more experience. Um, even my set designer was a great person, Joan Griffin. She was just like, you know, there's different people in, in writers and things that encouraged me along the way. And so, yeah, it was difficult. And I did go through a lot of different, um, you know, having to learn things on my own and trial and error. And then I just, my, my whole thing was like, I want to put on high quality productions uh, for audiences in, um, you know, all these different venues so people could just have access to it. 
and putting on things that ha are really high quality and then like having so many different hats and then just but it was good for me because i could discover it through the character right being a producer and then being able to like you know do the research and just endless amount of research i ended up really it, uh giving my acting all of these different dimensions so i really enjoyed that and then i got some great partnerships i worked with audience view which was uh, uh, uh theater mania and then i i had the aka help me and stuff like that so those things were great but the last production i was going to put on that's that's relevant you know mostly as question two was that uh i was uh, i was playing br brilliant traces and if you see the pictures of me while I was doing that, you know, I had my hair back. I had a beard. At that time, you would be asking me, you know, how old am I? And then you'd be wondering, why oh, does this guy have such a, a long, thick beard? Which I didn't even know I could grow at the time. But I just stayed in this, like, isolated character for such a long time. And then um, the, the set that we put up was so brilliant and beautiful. And the play was had this idea of, like, individuation was a poem in the beginning of it. And so I was kind of going through this Jungian kind of growth in my acting while I was doing it. And uh, we had the pandemic hit. I had no idea that I didn't watch the news. I wasn't looking at anything. I was being this isolated mountain man, you know, in my life. So whenever that happened, you know, we, we got the, the show had to shut down on the day of opening, which oh, wow. was like, it was insane. So I stayed in the character for like, I don't know, four months, like five months, I continued to be, this mountain man that was sort of isolated in these ways. And uh, I think that it sort of was so relevant to the situations of what's going on um, that, you know, like, I, I think that play could be re-put on at any time, but I also have like four more different plays that are in the, the coffers that are, that are ready to go that I'm like developing while I'm actually starting to work now on a film that I've sort of, um, that, I, that I'm putting into the, the pre-production and the pitch and just trying to get other people interested in it and just kind of gonna show some little stylistic ways and clips that we can go because I can incorporate my modeling and move there. And then I would like to, you know, reincorporate the theater as soon as we can sort of pitch some of these projects to people and make them line up in a really attractive way that can kind of like garner that momentum. Mm. Wow. Thanks, guys. Yeah, I right. <laughs> appreciate those no, are good questions. Yeah, no, 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 I'm liking it so far. So let's just jump to specifically enough latest projects. What's happening? Latest projects right now for you? Latest projects. All right. So I'm doing so I'm doing a couple of more modeling things. I've started to work with some photographers who I really respect and admire. I've got my film company coming out. So we're working on uh, launching the film, the film uh, company, which is going to be an extension more or less of myself as far as like the way that I pitch it to other production studios. And I want to I want to show this film that I've been working, which I feel like comes really from the heart and the soul. And, and it's a very um, a movie that I think that will be very freeing and kind of like has some tones. So I'm going to go around and I'm going to work with different artists. I've got some uh, artists that I'm working with who I've worked with before that are in Italy. Some people have shown some interest in London, some people in uh, like the West Coast coast and and down in florida and i think there's going to be some like such really interesting dynamic that i can capture with each one of these different people and i can show the different elements of what i'm working on with this film so i can kind of practice myself getting those things in gear showing people what we're doing now 
And then, um, you know, like allowing other artists to sort of um, put their tent poles and see where all of this kind of goes. So it's like I'm moving with that flow still. And that's where my artistic direction is going. That's yeah. fantastic. All right. So, Dave, Thanks. your final question. It'll be interesting to see if he has been touched by caregiving as a young guy and young parents. But go ahead, Dave. Tell your story. Yeah, you know, I... Adam, I used to be your age, believe it or not, and it seemed like it was just yesterday. <laughs> That's how fast time flies when you're having fun and, and when you are young, et cetera. And I'm sure you haven't even thought about this yet, but you know, the aging population today, uh, there's more older people today than there are younger people, and that has really shifted you know, because of the baby boomers and all of that stuff. But that means more and more people are going to need care. They're going to need nursing homes. They're going to need caregivers, et cetera. And surely there are some people in your life who, who may be older, grandparents, I don't know, uh, maybe even some friends who uh, eventually will need care. And have you ever thought about that? I mean, it's like this tsunami coming down and all of a sudden, you know, well, like me, I was just a normal guy. And then one day, boom, my wife has a stroke uh, 25 years ago. We were both relatively young and she loses her speech. She's uh, becomes paralyzed on one side and my life just turned upside down and, and we had to figure out the new normal. And, and uh, does that thought ever come to you? Do you know anybody who's ever had to like, care for somebody and it just changed their life? Yeah, absolutely. Um, even some, my uh, older, my old producer, uh, somebody I was working with in a, in a show, they were uh, constant, they were taking care of their grandparents. And, um, and I, and I think about it too, you know, my family is pretty relatively young because I, when I was growing up, I, like I was, my parents were so young when they had me. So I had a lot of great grandparents um, and different older people in my life that I, that were impactful and I knew very well. And so, you know, they, they really like, uh, like I'll say my great, my great grandfather called him great Gramps, And he was, uh, he fought in, you know, World War II for America. And he was like a, a really honorable person. And so when I, I like, for instance, like I used to go play baseball with him and I would try to give him my glove and he would say, no, he would let me, he would tell me to pitch the ball to him with his bare hands. And then he would, you know, he would catch the ball like that. He'd say, no, throw it harder. And it really like, um, and he ended up passing like, you know, a few years sort of like a after that, maybe, you know, when I was still young and uh, I always felt like he was like an angel, you know what I mean? In my life that was guiding me because I felt like he had these principles and I felt like he had to touch my heart in this way. So whenever, you know, my grandparents do, I'm very, I'm so close to my grandma. Like I love her so much. And so when I think about these things, it's hard for me because um, looking at age and stuff like being in this way, I don't, you know, I don't consider age so much. And I try to sometimes deny that reality. You know, it's like, I, I love, I love them so much. And I love, and I love um, the older, my older friends, older generations and things that it's like, you, you really have to cherish the time that you have with people yeah. and, and they've affected me so much. And even like my neighbor, I had a neighbor over here and I, I he used to yell over the fence to me and tell me to come out and I would come outside and talk to him. And then like, I didn't see him for a few weeks. And then I found out that he passed away. And I was like, wow. you know, it was really sad. But the, but the guy was so kind to me. Like, he told me to turn my music off one time. And I got upset with him. I was like, man, come on. I'm trying to have a good time. I'm listening to my music. And then he told, and then he's had like a very personal moment with me. He said, like, you know, I was on my own when I was a kid. And I had this like rough stuff happen to me. 
And I thought, and it was like, then me and him became like such close, like friends. Like he would always, you know, yell over the, to the, the like the wall to me. And then I just like, you know, when he passed, I just started having these thoughts of like how he affected me and how beautiful that was to allow me to just kind of like uh, mature, you know, in that way. So when I think about the older generation and like what we can do, you know, for the older generation or how we can stay connected. I mean, it's just like, I guess if we can express to people how much those like little interactions mean, you know, what we all want to live and be immortal, you know what I mean? In these different ways in life, but like, that's so immortal to me. And those things mean so much to me. How do we like express to people how much that they mean to us and, you know, through life, like, so, I I mean, that's what I think. Yeah, that's impressive, Dave. It's impressive, a young guy like him, being able to yeah. speak. He's, a, he's an old soul. I don't know what planet yeah. he came so from. Dave, but, uh, so, you know, hey, Dave. Come, come, come from Kansas. Maybe, maybe, he's, maybe he should play in your movie, right? You've not, <laughs> yeah. you've not cast your movie yet, right? Yeah. When is your movie getting cast? Sometime? Uh, it's going to the Hollywood editors in a couple of months. And so... So you've uh, already filmed it? Yeah, it's already filmed. Oh, that's great. So I can't wait to it's in the editing phase. All right. Well, fantastic. Adam, best place we can connect. What's the best place with you? Yeah, reach reach out to me on Instagram right now. I think that's the best uh, platform that you can find me. If you want to go on my website, you can go on creode.org. If you want to go on my Instagram and reach out to me on there, you can um, you can find me at Adam Dennis Geiger, um, A-D-A-M-D-E-N-N-I-S-G-E-I-G-E-R. Fantastic. Thanks again. Thank you, Dave. And guys, that was the Caregiver Dave Celebrity Second Ticker. We're back to the Neil Haley Show. And my guest today is building out a great celebrity show now. Uh, He started out 80s hour, you know, just talking 80s. Now he's talking with celebrities about 80s stuff. And we're going to learn about the first three guests he's had that are celebrities and much, much more to come. Juan Aleman. Juan, how are you, man? What's going on? I'm good, Neil. Uh, thank you. And uh, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. How are you today? I'm doing great. And we're going to just jump right into specifically enough the guests. First one, I know he, I when I interviewed him the first time, uh, Dr. Sean Stasiak, I was just blown away and we developed a great friendship and relationship from that. But what did you think your first experience talking to Sean Stasiak? Because Sean has the most amazing stories about pro wrestling, about life. He really is entertaining. He's entertaining, intelligent, well-spoken, and he's got vision of what he wants to do. He's got so many things on the back burner because he's Dr. Sean right now, uh, and he's got lots of plans. We talked about his future plans. We talked about some of the things that uh, he's worked on, and uh, he's got some really great ideas, uh, entertaining ideas, and... um, things that will really interest people, not only in the wrestling community, but uh, with the 80s, with the kind of the style, with some of the stuff he's doing. He's a, he's a firecracker, that guy. <laughs> no, he's most definitely. And, uh, you know, you could just talk to him about anything, but I know he loves 80s, right? Yes, definitely. He loves the 80s. He said maybe we could get together another time because he was on my wrestling program, but um he said maybe we could get together sometime and just talk 80s, which is really cool. Yeah, and he's 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 a great guy. And I think that which you learned from Sean is about his career in wrestling and his father's lineage is amazing. 
So that's available as a podcast right now. And uh, so the Wrestling Wayback podcast for that one, right? That's correct. And so you can check that out. And again, he has the 80s hour. And we're going to talk more 80s hours, Juan, about the last two guests he had in his program involving that. But make sure you like, subscribe, share this video and let people know because more big celebrities are coming. Just trust me, it's going to be a busy, busy March as I've been seeing February because of the award season. And now all the celebrities are getting together and they're going to be promoting more. I've just noticed it from just ones that are coming up for me uh, in the upcoming basis. So let's kind of go into specifically enough your next guest. And he, again, was from an iconic time, an iconic show, the remake of that show. And then tell us about the guest and what an experience you had with him. That was James Grixoni. He was on the reboot of uh, Twin Peaks. He's done a lot of films. He's a young guy, but started really young. And one thing that I found out in researching him was that he's a musician a drummer and a vocalist. So we talked a lot about punk music, which I thought was really cool. Uh, he had a lot of great input and uh, the show kind of centered around him and then punk music from the 80s. So, it was so what did you think when you talk about Twin Peaks? What, like, did you watch the reboot of Twin Peaks? I, I mean, watched, did, mm-hmm. yes, I did watch the reboot of Twin Peaks. Um, wasn't as good as the original. I mean, nothing ever, you know, in your mind, you build something up. Uh, it was really good. It was excellent David Lynch work. We did talk about David Lynch and the influence that he had on James, which was very interesting. Yeah. And so that's, that's, I had a little bit of a conversation with James as well. And that that's the big thing is David is talking about David Lynch and right. how he has experienced David Lynch. And I think David Lynch is doing a show right now. Am I correct? That's on, uh, I forget w- about trafficking and stuff. If I'm correct, I, I got to look back and see. Uh, but he's he's a genius, what he did with Twin Peaks. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, truly. And, and James is an interesting character, his interesting projects. And that's available at the 80s hour. So you go check that podcast out. Make sure you like and share. Then you and I got the chance to co-host. And we almost had two chances. And since we've been together and it just happened, one was, uh, as I'm remembering correctly, as I've become good friends with both of them, one from Full House and then also somewhat so and, and another, but the co-hosting opportunities come all the time. So stay tuned when Juan has another opportunity, but you got to talk to Lobo. And I think this guy and why he was successful in the seventies, especially is basically his look. He had the feel, but he also, his songwriting is just amazing. His songs, how he's able to write stories and that, that's what we learned a lot from Lobo is that people won't write stories anymore, music like he does. Right. Uh, I completely agree with you. Uh, he had some great hits in the 70s. We talked about how he moved on kind of to the country music in the 80s and uh, what he's doing now, the artists he likes from now. Um, and I really, really enjoyed when I uh, asked him who he would have duetted with some of the names he came up with. I was very surprised. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I I knew none of these musicians, and that's uh, being honest. I I did not know, I did not know these musicians, and you really understand music, and you really hit it off of Lobo. I think the Lobo. What is interesting is that he talked about his life and how he didn't tour as much as we thought. You know, you think uh, he was number one in the billboards, but one thing he brought a few times, and I'm shocked he doesn't have any awards because he was number one in the billboards. He worldwide has hit the charts in many times and he really, his music relates to the whole world, not just the United States and global music. And as we want and I, we kind of chatted about in the show, what if you're, you're surprised about how old music is doing better than new release music. I want to oh, get definitely. your take on that. Why is that happening? Is it because of the Spotify's the world, the Time Life? So we want to thank Time Life for that interview. And we're going to be doing another one with Time Life next week. And I hope that maybe Juan can uh, co-host with me. It's involving Debbie Boone. I don't know if you're a Debbie Boone fan. Oh, wow. Oh, uh, yeah. So I'm working on Debbie Boone right now. I didn't know if I got the confirmation, but we work with Time Life. And that's the great thing to be connected with Neil Haley because we connect with major things like Time Life. Reach out to me if you want to get that celebrity interview because I make it happen at neilhaley.com. And that's one of my new services as I've reinvented my website. So if people knock on to neilhaley.com, they can. Now, talk about that. Why is it happening? Spotify. Time Life, you know, YouTube, all the old music is getting more downloads and listens than new music. Why? I think it has to do with the storytelling that older songs had, the the melodies, um, the like I said, the, the wording, the the stories that went with it, the feeling. And now that it is readily available, you don't have to go searching for it at a record shop or uh, online. You go right to Spotify and you say, I want to hear Lobos, me and you and a dog named Boo. And it pops up and you're yeah. like, wow, more like this. And it's right there at your fingertips. You know, you're not digging anymore. You're just typing it in and it's right there. And um, a lot of the songs today, which Lobo did appreciate a, a couple of artists from today, but uh, a lot of the artists today sample a lot of the older music which there's nothing wrong with sampling. You know, yeah. uh, imitation is the uh, sincerest form of flattery. But, um, you know, originality is great too. And I think that's what people like to look back at, the originality that was happening in the 60s, 70s, 80s, um, that uh, really is not found today. No, it's not. And that's that's a great point. It is not found today and uh, in music. And so and I think the more downloads are happening because you're right, they're more known, uh, the artists. And I think that people like the music that's positive, as Lobo talked about. I don't know. It's just a very interesting thing. It'll be interesting to see the trends that happen in music today. And we're talking all different types of music. And that's the thing. And especially certain music does better in other countries than it does here. And that certain stars careers will continue to sell out in other countries. And we've seen that uh, when I've talked to people from Heart or I've talked to people from other bands that the thing that's happening is the older time music is doing better. And go figure why that's happening. But you got to go and look those things up and see what's happening. Now, uh, I think that what you bring to the 80s hour is this community. 
And people need to join that Facebook group community and find out. Because if I could start talking 80s with you, Juan, I talk 80s with you all day long. I mean, seriously. The Goldbergs is one of my favorite shows always. Uh, Any of the 80s remakes shows are fantastic. And it's just, I don't know. There's something about the 80s. There's something about the 80s music. There's certain about the trends in the 80s that the 90s can't do, the 2000s or 2010s. And I don't know, the 60s and 50s and 70s, 70s, but 70s was just really, everyone was the same. The 80s has this iconic time period. And so many different things, no one forgets the 80s and other people are involved. So having 80s conversations is very important. I had uh, a guy who's an expert that does it for public speaking. And he goes out and relates to teaching corporate training regarding the 80s. Go figure. He was an interesting guy. Uh, But the 80s, somehow, Juan just, I just don't know. So so, what what do you think it is? It was so eclectic. There were so many different things happening uh, with the emergence of rap music, the emergence of uh, more punk music, more metal music, uh, with movies really going further uh, with science fiction, um, with the absurd comedies like Airplane. Um, I think the main thing is that the people now who are kind of basically running the country grew up in the eighties. You know what I mean? And uh, they're thinking nostalgically, that was such a good time. And there's a demand for it because we taught our children to appreciate that time. A a time when people were starting to reach out and uh, look beyond latchkey kids and, um, just say no to drugs and Mr. T pity and the fool. And, you know, just so much stuff that was going on. Pee Wee Herman. I, can I go mean, on her on. wrestling in that time in the WWF days would never go anywhere except in the eighties. The there's <laughs> no eighties was the only time that you could get away with all those things. Andre the giant versus Hulk Hogan uh, right. in the eighties. I mean, you, you have the characters, you have the, just everything eighties just brought it. And it was to a point where everyone could be part of the eighties. Except right. then you think about the rock bands, their lives, but it's that, that's the 80s. And you can talk about a different 80s genre all the time. So the Facebook group community gives you that opportunity, right? To ask those questions, have those conversations, right? That's right. And where can they, how can they join the Facebook group right now? Uh, they can go to Facebook and look up the 80s hour and it's right there uh, for them. I'll add it to my Picture Perfect podcast page so that there's a direct link to it. That's um, something I need to do, and I'll take care of today. All right. You definitely got to put that out there. All right. That is it. 80s Hour. Download the three celebrities. More celebrities to come, I guess, working on Debbie Boom, working on some other people. And other in the mix, just be ready. The 80s Hour is the place to be. And if you're a sponsor and interested in sponsoring or doing a live 80s show with one with a major celebrity, make it happen by just reaching out to him. And I appreciate it, Juan, for you coming by. Okay. Hey, thank you, Neil. Thank you, as always, for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. That was the Neil Haley Show, guys. Take care. We are back here to the Neil Haley Show. And I tell you what, this topic, when you first hear the book, you're like, oh, my gosh. Why are we going to talk about something about procrastination and say it's a good thing 
to be a procrastinator. But when you find out my expert today, uh, he's going to really explain things. So I have Dr. Patrick Sanahan on the show, and he wrote a book, How to Be a Better Procrastinator. And I love the topic title, but I was thinking, wow, when I first had him on my show, are you kidding me? It's okay to be a good procrastinator, but you're going to learn in these stories that all of us are procrastinators. It doesn't matter if we're the most organized person in the world. So Dr. Patrick, thanks for stopping by. And do you, do you agree with me on that fact that, you know what, I think everyone is a procrastinator in one way. We aren't all perfect. Absolutely, Neil. Uh, everyone procrastinates about something, but somewhere between 20 and 25% of the adult population are what they consider chronic procrastinators. It becomes a lifestyle for them. So that's tens of millions of people and there's a good chance you know somebody personally or professionally that has procrastination as a really negative habit in their lives. And it's a, it's a way to help it. But I think that everyone in one place or another wants to put something off. Can yes. you tell me a story about things that you've put off before and how that putting putting it off could also be a detriment to you? Even though you're an organized person, you're, you have a professional business, you're, you're an educator. PhD level, work with high level uh, college and uh, educational professionals, and you are procrastinator sometimes. Absolutely. That's why one of the things I say in the book, I'm a productive procrastinator, very accomplished in many areas. The two uh, arenas that I still have difficulty with uh, is uh, doing my income taxes. I put that off and put it off and put it off. So do millions and millions of people. And it's a very noxious task for me. And also when I do uh, detailed invoices, you know, I'm on the road a lot. So if I might be in the hotel and get mileage things down and how do I charge for restaurants and things like that, all those little details become overwhelming for me. So oftentimes I'll delay and delay and delay my invoicing process in billing my clients, even though I'm getting paid. So those are the two buckets that I still have to manage. The rest of my life, I'm very productive and very successful. And see, I have those stories as well. So talk about why you put off that invoice. It's an interesting story because, I mean, I heard your story. We've already had on um, one of the on your social media. It's available. You can check you out all over the place. Just search you and find you and especially go to your website. But when you talk about specifically enough invoicing, why is it that, you know, especially consultants like you and I, you know, entrepreneurs that, you know, working with clients, why do we put off the invoice? There's a lot of details involved. I mean, if I have two or three clients on a trip, I'm figuring out what I'm, which ones I'm charging what to and what the daily rate is. If I have a nonprofit client versus a corporate client, the rates are very, very, very different. And those details, the mileage and hotels and things like that, they become, I'm not very good at math either. I've always, I'm not a math phobic, but I'm just not good at math. And a lot of that's adding things up and making sure things are in organized fashion. So those, that's the connection between my income tax and my invoicing. It's all around math and details and numbers. And those are things I try to avoid. And so tell us the ways you avoid it in invoices, at least that you get them done. At least what, what kind of tips do you provide yourself every time, oh man, it's time to invoice. And I know this, there's a date. And my mistake is that sometimes I invoice all same time at a certain point in the month. And oh man, that's when all the money comes in. And then, or not all the money, but you know what I mean? That's when I get paid. And so tell us specifically enough, you know, that process to help procrastinators and stories, how you become better at invoicing than you were before and putting off to make sure that you do it. Absolutely. There's two techniques or strategies I use when I do my invoicing, because uh, I find it pretty aggravating. 
and uh, I watch sports. I watch sports and I enjoy sports. Whatever the sport is, I just enjoy all the sports. And so I'm enjoying myself while I'm doing this noxious task. It takes me twice and three times as long, but that's okay. I get I get done. And then the second thing I do is I uh, have a reward for myself. When I say to myself, okay, after I do the, the invoicing piece, I'm going to go to the movie or read a chapter in a mystery novel or have a glass of wine. I mean, I make sure there's a reward set up after I accomplish the task. So there has to be, it's almost the, um, there's, there's ways that you are rewarding yourself in both ways. I like that. So you're using extrinsic uh, motivation twice. Once you're getting to watch sports while you're doing, you're doing your invoices so that basically you're enjoy having something that's enjoyable while going through a very painful task. And yes. secondly, the second thing you're doing is rewarding yourself when you finish the task with even a more rewarding thing, the glass of wine. Great strategy, great tip. Yep, just two quick things. What that's called, when you marry something noxious with something positive, it's called temptation bundling, right? You bundle something nice with something that you don't like to do. So if you don't like to exercise, you might walk with a friend or you might play music in, in your headphones. If you're doing ironing, which is an, you know, an aggravating, boring task, you might watch a movie while you're doing it. So it's called temptation bundling. And the thing about rewards is a lot of times adults say to themselves, and this is really dangerous thinking, I shouldn't need a reward. I should be more disciplined. I should be more mature. And it's absolutely silly thinking because we know from the research rewards really work. And oftentimes the anticipation of the reward is even more powerful than the reward itself. So set up your reward schedule. After you do a difficult task, make sure you have a reward that you're looking forward to. It just works. No, I, I think that's a, a fantastic tip because uh, the – the thing is, I don't think of that in certain ways. Like, so if I'm doing something that I really don't want to do, like, right. let's say, go to do, you know, your yearly checkup, they're like, oh, I'm dreading. What's the doctor going to say? How do you, you have to reward yourself after that for scheduling it, have some sort of reward and then reward yourself afterwards in some sort of way. If it's, you know, taking, you know, having that, that enjoy something that is very, very enjoyable for you. So that, that, I think that's fantastic. Now, what you wrote this book because ultimately your goal is to help the people that are really struggling with procrastination, that are, they, they, they maybe are not getting jobs, they might not be getting business, they might be having a horrible family life, they might have a house that is out of control and you know utter chaos because of procrastination. Tell us a story that you've seen where it's become very detrimental to somebody's life? Oh, I, I have a, a friend of mine who's a doctor and uh, does colonoscopies. And uh, he gets about a 20% cancellation rate the day before people have to go in. They've scheduled it 20%. And that's you're threatening your health by doing that. And I have a dentist friend, the same thing. He gets so frustrated because he says people cancel, you know, for a root canal, which is not a, a fun thing to do, uh, oftentimes 15 to 20% cancellation rate the day or two before. So people put off and they, and they jeopardize their health with their procrastination habit. And so it's, it's, yeah, especially during COVID, think about that also, you know, yeah. that they, they don't go and get when you have pains and pain in your body and you don't go and you ignore that pain. That's procrastination as well. Oh, you know, I'm gonna, I'll get, I'll get that checked out before, and we all make mistakes, and that can be very detrimental. What about if you, you know, a procrastinator, uh, 
how is the process of helping people get better organized? Is it, is it, is it, tell me a story specifically of a time when you or have seen somebody that's a procrastinator be helped through a process. How do you approach a procrastinator? Absolutely. What do you do without offending them? Tell me a story. It's a great, great question. So a very good friend of mine uh, had a three-car garage that was full of crap, basically. He saved a lot of things. He wasn't a hoarder, but he saved things. He had boxes of this. He was collecting that. And his uh, wife said, I can't even park the car in there. So will you clean that up? And for six months, he would, every Saturday morning, uh, he would uh, open up the garage doors and look at this mess and just close the garage doors. He just got overwhelmed. And he said, what do you, do you have anything that can help me? And I said, yeah. I said, is there somebody else in your neighborhood that has a, a, a crappy garage just like you do? He said, yeah, Bill right across the street. His, his garage is crappier than mine. I said, here's a suggestion. You go and knock on Bill's door with a six pack of beer. And you say, Bill, I'd like to buy you a beer. And by the way, I'll give you an hour of my time to help you start cleaning out your garage. Would you be interested? <laughs> well, who's going to say no to that? They'll say, oh, my God. And so they spent an hour. And then what they did is they rotated every Saturday. And in three months, once again, the time frame, a lot of times procrastinators give themselves deadlines that are too tight. They, you know, they had a few beers together, had a lot of conversation in both their garages. They weren't perfect looking. They weren't perfectionists, but you could actually park a car in both of them and you could walk through and see what you had. So they took three months. They built a nice little friendship and it's, it's called asking for help. Procrastinators have to learn how to ask for help instead of hunkering down with their habit. All right. That's, that's, that's a great point. And you're not at least telling them you're a procrastinator and you're right. going to them in a way with a reward seems like you like rewards. Why are the rewards help are better ways to push someone forward than let's say giving them a punishment or a critique? Tell us yeah. why. Yeah, critiques don't help and self-criticism doesn't help with procrastinators and they tend to be very self-critical. When you beat yourself up, it doesn't cure, cure your habit and manage your habit very, very effectively. And there's a lot of research that says if you're kind of self-forgiving you know, or show yourself a little bit of self-care and self-compassion, you can manage your procrastination habit a lot better. And a lot of this was done with college students who were beating themselves up in the first semester because they didn't, you know, they procrastinated to the last minute. And they did some meditation exercises with them and some self-care exercises with them. And they cut their procrastination habit in, habit, in half in, in the second semester. So not being, criti being critical doesn't help. It just doesn't help. So it's you believe that rewarding people yes. gives them more incentive to do something than punishing. Absolutely. I mean, it just is more constructive and more positive. You look forward to it. You say, okay, I'm going to sit down here for 20 minutes and do the invoicing. And afterwards, I'm going to have a beer. Or afterwards, I'm going to take a walk with a friend. Or afterwards, I'm going to get a piece of pie. It, it, it just works. And there, the research is very strong on that. So let's just use what works and not have theories in our head about what we should do. I, let me just talk about one other thing. We have uh, this notion uh, with procrastinators that I have to feel like doing something before I do it. And, and it, it's, it's a backward thinking. You have to act what you do something. You move something forward for 10, 15 minutes. 
you create momentum and that creates motivation to continue. So if you're waiting, I'm never going to feel like doing my income taxes ever. So I have to chew, you know, we call them chewable chunks, 15 minutes at a time, watching sports, knock it off and take a break. And over time, not at one sitting, you can sit there for, you sounds like 12 or 14 hours, which I think is amazing. I can't do that. So I do it in chewable chunks. I have rewards in between and I eventually get my income taxes done. And the reason I'm able to do that is because I had difficulty focusing before and I just basically put my head down and able to do it. And ultimately, I still don't know all the productivity if it could be better if it was done in the morning and have a certain intake break. So that's another strategy. You have to figure out what works for yourself so you're able to become as productive as possible and define what productivity is in so many ways. So all these tips and different things are available for your book, right? Is that correct? Absolutely. There's over 100 little strategies that work. They're really practical, commonsensical strategies that work with procrastinators. And it's a very easy book to read. You can start anywhere you want. It's written for procrastinators. A lot of times procrastinators will start in the middle or start in the end. And each chapter is short and it's got packed full of ideas. So you can take 15 minutes max. You don't have to read the whole book. Take 15 minutes max to read a section and you'll have a couple of ideas. All right. So, Dr. Patrick, it's time for you to provide a tip for me involving different quadrant lists. So I'm a list guy and I, yep. I and, and I found out that doing lists on my phone just doesn't work because you never go to open up your phone to see the list. It's great to take notes because if you take notes in anything, regardless if it's on a tablet, it's with your pen and paper, even taking notes in your head, which I'm able to do. The, the fact is, if you're paying attention and taking notes in any of those ways, it's going to work. But when it comes to lists, lists that are hidden, what is the how many procrastinators make the mistake when it comes to lists that are hidden? Well, a lot of times, and there's a guy named David Allen who's written a lot on time management, and he told us our, our brains are not storage mechanisms, they're thinking mechanisms. And when we have ideas just floating in our heads all the time, it's cluttering us up and distracting us. So he says, write it down. So when you have an idea or a thought or a brainstorm, instead of it bouncing all over the place, just write it down and then you know read it later. So writing down is really important. The other thing around lists, uh, Neil, is that we oftentimes have lists that are way too long. And we're not realistic. Right? We're too aspirational. And we and, and uh, there's a gentleman named Daniel Kahneman who won the Nobel Prize for this thinking. He says, we're terrible at figuring out how long something's going to take and how hard it's going to be. So if I say, oh, I'll just write that page in, in 15 minutes, and then three hours later, you know, I'm still fooling around with the same page, I didn't have a realistic you know, notion. Does that make sense? No, it makes complete sense. And I'm going to take that tip today. You know, I'm always, my number one talent uh, is ideation, coming up with ideas. And I sometimes don't write those down because somehow something comes up and I'm like, man, I should do that. And yep. I'm like, oh my gosh. And I don't put it on a list. If you don't write it down, and I believe a list has to be physically at you. It has to be large. And when I see it, I'm like, holy cow, I'm going to do it. It's sitting right at me and I'm staring at it. I'm going to do it. And then I have to figure out now that reward because, and it has to be written and, and it can't be hidden. So how many people do you know that have so many notebooks everywhere how to organize all that, all those lists and you've written down a piece of paper. What's your recommendation? Is that putting on a list to make sure your lists are organized? Because I think people that don't have lists really are the worst procrastinators. 
Yeah, having a list is is a really good idea, but only having one list is the key. So if you've got a smartphone list and you have a, a paper list, I have a list every day that's in a piece of bright yellow paper. I can see it from a block away almost. I mean, it, it just attracts my attention. I also make sure, and I, I did for many years, I put 10 things on my thing to do, at my to-do list every day. And I was feeling exhausted. I would get to seven or eight, and I'd still have two things to go, and I just didn't have the energy, and I was feeling like a failure. And a buddy of mine kind of said, well, why do you have 10 things every day? He says, well, I think that's what you're supposed to do. I, heard, I think I heard it someplace. He said, that's ridiculous. Cut your lists in half. Cut your lists in half. And so that was about seven years ago. And now I have five or six things max that I do. They're all important things. And I feel successful. And about 90% of the time, I get all five or six done, which at the end of the day, I feel like $100. $100. So make your... Write your things down and make your list a lot shorter than they are. Because what happens is people do 10, they don't get the two. The next day, they move them to the next day, and they have 12 things. And then by Thursday, you get 18 and 19 things, and you're exhausted. You don't feel like you've accomplished anything. Always keep the five or six, prioritize it, and have one list. So what about you need to have all those lists written down. Where do those other lists go that you were going to get to once it comes time to get to them? Yeah, you have to have an idea catching system. I mean, I've that's the that's the journal. I just have one list. I mean, I have a smartphone, I have a computer, I have all those things that people have. But I only keep one list of what I need to do on a bright piece of yellow paper every day. It just focuses my attention. Yeah, I'm missing this big list of things I have ideas for. And I figured it out. I had a list of 150 things, and this would be if I ever get to a list. And it's somewhere. I wrote it down one time. I was a place where there's no smartphone or anything, and it's not oh. there. And it's like, oh my gosh, I came up with so many ideas. And if I would have known that my number one talent was ideation, life would be so much better for me now. All right. So let's go, let's go ahead and, uh, you know, and let's go and put towards why you wrote the book. I want to know why you wrote the book. Just kind of give us that spiel of what's the motivation of writing this book. Yeah, well, the motivation was that uh, I've wrestled with procrastination, you know, most of my life, and I really came up against it when I was writing my dissertation 30 years ago, and I was reading my dissertation. I wasn't writing it, right? I got caught in research and research and doing more research and more research. In the end of the day, you get paid to write, not to read. And the chair of my committee said, Sanahan, if you don't get two chapters done this semester, you're out of the program. Oh, no. Because two extensions. So it was a very subtle and sophisticated form of procrastination, reading, 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 but not writing, writing, writing. And so I went and I asked three people who had finished their dissertations, what the heck did you do? And everyone had a couple little strategies they did. One of them was rewards. One of them was make sure you make your progress visible, right? So that you see that you're making you know, progress during the day and get away from uh, uh, distractions. Now, it's a lot easier you know, 30 years ago to get away from distractions than there are today. But if you find yourself you know, kind of being distracted, you got to go someplace else. And for me, I go to the public library. Uh, and if that's busy and crowded sometimes with kids, I go to the university library that's about a mile and a half from my house. And they actually have a quiet room there where no one is talking and you can really get focused. If you come to your desk and it's really cluttered for procrastinators, it's starting, instead of you doing fixing the clutter, because you'll just, you'll just die of you know, enthusiasm, um, you go someplace else, go to the kitchen table. The kitchen table might be clean. If that's not clean, go to the dining room table. That's usually pretty clean. So you go someplace else quickly and you get focused on what you need to do. All right. Place to uh, go ahead and purchase the book. It's available on Amazon and also your website, right? Yes, it is. The Sanahangroup.com. All right. Well, we appreciate it, uh, Dr. Patrick. Great conversation. Can't wait to have more of these. It is going to be fun, especially these little tidbits of information that you give us that's like, 
wow. And I think the one that I'm going to take is when I have an idea, I'm going to write it down. Now, that's a list. I'm going to write it down. That's what these writers do all the time, right? When they write books, they have a dictation or something and they get an idea about what book they want to write next. And it's crazy. Isn't those ones that crank out 12 books a year or something? It's nuts. I don't know where the, you know, the ones that are these unbelievable authors. It's just like, wow. And if you have ideas, don't, don't lose them. Go after them. And I appreciate you stopping by. Absolutely. Thank you, Neil, for the opportunity. All right. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show. And we'll be back in just a moment.